Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today in our Genesis series, we're going to look at how God guards his covenant. God guards his covenant. I want to begin with a question. I like to use questions to kind of set the stage, to kind of frame our thinking on what we're considering today. What does it mean to you to say God is sovereign? What does it mean to you to say that God is sovereign? Most would likely say it means God can do as he chooses. And we're typically okay with this until what he chooses is beyond our understanding, is beyond our like or agree with, or is beyond our own control. And friends, I present to you today that these are the very realms in which God's sovereignty dwells. If it's within our capacity, it doesn't have to be within his sovereignty, though it remains there. But once it gets outside of us, when God shows that he doesn't in fact live in the box that we thought we had put him in, right? Then sovereignty shines through. So, what do we do? When God's sovereignty moves beyond our understanding or our control. Into those realms where he is God. And it becomes very clear we are not. What do we do? Think about this. Are there any situations in your life. That you have had to accept as God's sovereign plan that you have struggled to accept. Let's think about that for a moment. See, the reason I want you to think about these things is because so often we can grow in our intellect. But when it gets hard, sometimes we will fight against applying it. Into the depths of the adorations and the affections of our life. You can't do that, friends. You can't do that specifically with what we're talking about today. Are there any situations in your life that you've had to accept as God's sovereign plan that you struggle to accept? Or, or maybe that have continued in some way, in some manner, or degree, or measure that has caused you angst with God? Maybe a past experience, a past relationship, situation, circumstance. I I want you to be thinking about that today. Because if we are honest, we all must answer yes, at least to the first part of that. If you have never had God show up in a realm beyond your control, beyond your understanding, or beyond your comprehension, you've yet to meet God. (laughs) That's very simple. And we have a solution for that. We want to introduce you to him today. His name is Jesus. You're going to hear that. But for the rest of us, we have to be honest, at least with the first part. Yes, That may not still be causing us angst in our life. I want to help us with this today. Here's what I want you to walk away understanding. God sovereignly guards his covenant promise to secure salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. God sovereignly guards his covenant promise to secure salvation for all who believe 
in Jesus Christ. I want to take just a moment to walk through Genesis 23 and 24 to make sure that we don't miss the full context of what's transpiring in Genesis 25. So you may need to turn over a page, go to Genesis 23. I'm not going to read from these chapters, but I'm just going to kind of survey them quickly for us. In Genesis 23, Sarah passes away and Abraham buys a field with a cave to bury her. Abraham does not allow the field to be given to him because he doesn't want there to be any innuendo of that it was not legal. And so he wants to secure the property as his own because sooner or later he too knows he will be buried with her in that cave. And so that's what he does. And so when we get to chapter 24... Abraham begins to turn his focus to the heritage that he will pass on to his son of promise, Isaac. His wife has passed. He knows his passing is not far away. He's turning to matters of importance. And at the center of his concern is the promise of God on his life. And that promise of God to whom he honors in his way is an expression of his trust in that God. And so what does he do in chapter 24? He sends his servant with specific instructions to find a wife for his son, Isaac. His little boy needs a son. He's 40 years old, right? Now, some of this can so often get lost on us because this isn't the way the world operates anymore. Like, I, I, I wasn't 40 when I got married, and um, my wife was not found by my parents and brought and given to me in that way. So th- there's just a lot of cultural things that take place that we can, we can struggle to really reckon with here. But let's not allow that to trip us up and miss the message of what's taking place. What transpires here is that the focus of Abraham's charge to his servant for Isaac is that God's call and man's obedience remain priority in what's transpiring here. Abraham is saying, look, I know that Isaac is my son of promise and I'm going to see that in everything I do, I I, I do all I can for that promise of God to be fulfilled in the right way. I mean, he's making sure he's taking care of his son in the way he can. And so he sends him out with a very specific requirement to a very specific place because he's promised Sarah that he will not take a bride for Isaac that is not from their people. So the the servant goes back and the servant himself prays in Genesis 24 that God would make it very clear and he lists some kind of specifications for how God would make that clear that are aligned with Abraham's charge to him. And immediately upon reaching this well, this lady comes out. It's Rebecca. She's drawing water. And by the drawing of the water, they have this conversation. And then he asks, is there any way, way that your father's home could house me for the night? They come in and God just takes care of every minute detail with a clarity that is divine in its origin. Just makes it so clear that you would say to yourself, wow, it's like God got here before I did. It's like he goes before us, which we know he does. And all along through the account, there is an emphasis on the process by which Rebecca is chosen. You see, she is considered by some to be the female Abraham because we see in her life the echo of Abraham's call 
in God's sovereign choosing of her. And, and she accepts that as a prayerful call to leave her land and to leave her family and to go in obedience. Because the family says, why don't you stay with us? And the servant says, that's not what my master has asked. I need to take her and take her back to her husband. And so that's what they say. He said, well, let's ask Rebecca. Rebecca says, absolutely, I will go. There's no hesitation. There's only immediate obedience in her heart. And so she leaves. They go back, and when they return, Isaac receives Rebecca as his wife. And so Genesis 23 and 24 remind us by the blessing bestowed on Abraham, even by others, by Rebekah's family, that God is working, that he is true and he is faithful to his covenant promise. Man, we, we can just see it. And so often in our lives, it's so quick for us to say, yes, God is sovereign. And especially when we see the beginning from the end or the beginning by the end, and even easier when we're looking at it in someone else's life. But God has more for us than that, friends, to only see it in other people's lives. God's covenant promise, we see, has a new family here to which Abraham can bestow his heritage, and more importantly, that God has sovereignly chosen to pass on as his chosen. Person. So when we come to Genesis chapter 25, we see Abraham has remarried and, and he has an additional family lineage that is listed there. But his blessing remains on Isaac exclusively because in verse 5 it states, Abram gave all he had to Isaac. Now understanding what that verse means, we see Abraham cared for his other children. But the portion of priority was recognizing God's promise and it's resting upon Isaac. And so that's why that uh, all he had, it says, went to Isaac. Because he was the one through whom his covenant blessing would continue. And then it tells us that he separated Isaac from the remainder of his siblings. Why? Because again... That's the call of God in salvation. We see that in the New Testament. Come out and be holy as God is holy. And it wasn't uh, for us, it's, it's not identical, but, but we see the echoes of this early on in salvation and how Abraham sets apart Isaac and Rebekah so that the siblings will not become to him a threat against God's promise coming upon him. All of this Abraham is doing by faith and fulfilling what he understands God's promise to be. And then we see that Abraham dies and Isaac and Ishmael, there we see some unity that remains even though separation is present in the family. They bury Abraham together in the cave with Sarah. And verse 11 records that after his death and burial, God blessed Isaac. That's not inconsequential, friends. What we're seeing is the hand of God approving and confirming the work that he has done through Abraham and what he is carrying forth. The unity of Abraham's obedience with God's blessing emphasizes that God works by his sovereign choice to fulfill the promise of his covenant. You know, friends, we love to speak of God's sovereignty, and rightfully so. But it's often what we have the most trouble with, and especially, especially when it comes to His election or His divine choosing. But friends, I'm, I'm laboring today 
for us to understand that election is God's guarding work in securing the promise of His covenant, the salvation of souls. I'm praying that God will anchor this deeply within us. Genesis chapter 25 highlights God's sovereign choice in carrying forth His covenant. And that's where I want to direct our attention for the remainder of our time. Go with me to Genesis 25, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. I'll read through verse 28. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word. Today. Genesis 25 includes two of the ten literary phrases by which the whole book of Genesis is organized. They're toledotes. And they're recognized by this phrase, these are the generations of. And here we encounter, first of all, in verse 11, we encounter the generation of Ishmael, the one who was not the promised son of uh, Abraham. And those verses share that. And then beginning in verse 19, we see these are the generations of Isaac. And so we're transitioning here to a new generation, a new understanding, a new narrative of how God is carrying forth His covenant promise through people. The generational head is not the key character of focus. So with Isaac, who is identified as the generation of, in verse 19, we begin to actually track with Esau and Jacob, and specifically with Jacob, his son, who will later become known as Israel. And his generation will trace for the remainder almost to the very end of the book of Genesis. Now it tells us Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Again, it's a bit difficult for us to understand this. But, but once they were married, they, they had difficulty in conceiving. And that was exemplified by Isaiah or Isaac's rather prayerful focus. Sorry, I'm trying to keep all the names straight in my mind as I'm going back. I'm going to dial in here in a minute and have fewer that I need to remember. But, but it's exemplified by Isaac's prayerful focus. God, give us a baby. And God grants his prayer and Rebekah conceives. But it tells us immediately that the babies were struggling in her womb. 
And this is not just, you know, all two babies and they're kicking and they're moving around. They're having a big time, big party in the womb before they come out. This is far more than that, friends. And we know that because of the prayer that Rebecca prays. And the prayer she prays says this, If it is thus, why is this happening? If it is thus, why is this happening? You see, her prayer in the original language is is not quite that clear. It's really more of an exhausted utterance than a clear inquiry. Literally, the Hebrew just says, if, why? I I mean, that captures the feeling of this prayer for her. And literally, it could be articulated more in this way. How can the pleasure of God's smile upon us in conceiving become a bitterness from His blessing in the struggle between these two? You see, Rebecca is recognizing that something far more than twin jostling is taking place in her womb. Her two children are at war with each other. And somewhere deep in her heart, she knows this. Now, in some way, every parent asks this similar question around age two or three, right? I mean, when you realize, oh my goodness, the perfect child that I have conceived is going to be like my spouse. And you see the sinful nature come glaring through, right? You, you, you get what I'm saying. It's not simply that, though, friends. This is far more That she recognized but she didn't fully comprehend. Other than death. Maybe no stage in life causes us to confront God's sovereignty more. Than the conception and the birth of children. And Rebecca's question expresses more. For a mother with two babies in her womb. Whom she deeply loves. In a way that only a mother could. We'll see that in a minute with Esau's description. (laughs) But they're struggling. And her two beloved children are at war with each other. Even from the womb. So what does she do? She inquires of the Lord. And he answers her. And here's what the Lord tells her. That it's not only two children in her womb. But there are two nations that will be divided. One will be stronger than the other. And the younger will serve the older. And friends, there is no response to this. There, there is no reaction to this in the scriptures. This just is. That's the kind of moment when we know we're dealing with God's sovereignty. God says it. It's true. But I don't understand it. I'm not sure I like it. I know I can't control it. What do I do with it? You see what I'm getting at here? God's sovereignty chooses Jacob over Esau for his covenant promise to be carried forth. So when Rebekah gives birth, the first one comes out, and Esau is described as red and a hairy cloak. Friends, this is the biblical basis for us to be able to justifiably say this. Not every newborn is instantaneously beautiful. (laughs) I mean, even if only Esau is the only one, we can smile and we can agree with, I'm not talking about your child, I'm talking about somebody else's, right? Yeah, I don't want to offend you, but I'm agreeing with you about what maybe you've thought in looking at other people's children at times. Come on, lighten up. Is he talking about mine? No, come on. 
red and hairy cloak? How many times have I visited a new birth family in the hospital and they went, come look at our red hairy cloak. Oh, you gave birth to Chewbacca. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) You know, great. God bless them. I'm out. That's what took place. And they named him Esau. And so we understand Esau means, God, why would you do this to my baby? (laughs) That doesn't mean that. I'm just saying that. Immediately after, his brother came out, and he was holding Esau's heel. And they named him Jacob, which means grabber. And then it tells us, this is not inconsequential. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. 60. You remember how old he was when they got married? 20 years had passed since they were married and prayed for a child. You hold on to that for a minute. We're going to need that in just a second. Esau, it tells us, was a skilled hunter. He was a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. He, one, was a preeminent outdoorsman. The other... Preeminent indoorsman. That's what it tells us. The writer tells us Isaac loved Esau because he loved his game. And there we know what every woman knows. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. But Rebekah, it says, loved Jacob. And so from this point forward, we learn more about Esau and Jacob than we've come to know even of Isaac. Why? Because God is revealing to us the one for whom he has sovereignly chosen to carry forth his covenant promise. And why do we learn such? Well, Isaac has already been part of his father's critical moment with God on the mountain. He knows the faithfulness and the trueness of God. But these two will be more key characters and one of the two specifically in this story than even Isaac himself. Really, the notability of Isaac is minimal in his adult years. He's involved and he's a character, but he is secondary to Jacob because we see God's choice that even goes against the natural order. And yet we're not given a full explanation. So what are we to do with these? Let me remind you one more time. God is sovereignly guarding his covenant promise to secure salvation for all who believe in Jesus. You see what God is doing, all that God is doing in the world. There is nothing in all of the world, in all of creation that God does that is outside of what we are considering today. Everything is part of God's redemptive plan and mission in this world. And so all that he is doing is to bring redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. We are told this repeatedly in the Bible and we can trust his work. We must trust him because the reason what we are studying here is so important would be tantamount to the reason it is important to make sure that the foundation of your home is firmly established before the first two by four gets put on it to build a wall. And friends, if you want to understand what it means for you to live by faith and obedience to God in a relationship with Him because of salvation, you need to listen up. You need to understand because God is revealing to us what salvation is all about.
in these words. And we can trust His work. We must trust what He is doing. I want to share with you three lessons of God's sovereignty today that guards His salvation that we must never forget. Lesson number one is this. God's election, or excuse me, God's sovereign election is sure certainty and eternal security of our salvation in Jesus Christ. His sovereign election is the sure certainty and the eternal security of our salvation in Jesus Christ. This we can say with the greatest of certainty. It's not because of the people. I mean, look at the people. Abraham. He just couldn't get over telling everybody that Sarah was his sister to serve his own self-protective interest, right? He was not a perfect man. Isaac, we will learn, is the same in many regards. He will commit the same sin that his father did. He will show far greater passivity in his own life than his father did. Jacob and Esau, we'll get to them in a minute. Friends, God's covenant is not sustained by our perfect performance. Not even among God's people. Because we've already seen the one for whom the covenant promise will pass. In Jacob, the chosen one, his name will become Israel. Who will become the people of God. Who the rest of the Old Testament is written about. To demonstrate the sovereignty of God in his choice and in his election. And it is not said of them they were a perfect people that never got anything wrong. No, it is said of them... They were hard-hearted. They gave lip service to God, but their hearts were far from Him. They rebelled at any instance and any opportunity to turn away from God. God's salvation does not come because of the merit or the worth of those who receive it. Romans 3 tells us there is none that are righteous, not even one. His covenant is guarded. Because of God. Because of who He is. Paul extols the greatness of God's work in salvation. In Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. And he says for us, it is His work. It is what He is doing. Friends, the certainty of our salvation in Jesus Christ is not a doctrine whereby we need to rest so we can check out spiritually or choose to live however we desire. Rather, it is the anchoring confidence that holds us as we obey and engage to serve God's mission, regardless of the direction or the demand, regardless of the sacrifice or the cost. We live certain, not because we are holding God, but in our holding to God, we learn He is the one holding us and we can trust Him. God, who is sovereign in salvation, is also sovereign in our obedience and in our mission. They are not in some way separate or distinct from one another. They are, in fact, the same. They are one. And we will not always understand God's will because His ways and His thoughts are not our ways and our thoughts. They are higher. And by the word higher, He means altogether other. Glorious in their conception and inception and in their fulfillment. But friends, listen, we can always 
trust His will. And that's what I am laboring for you today. And the way to trust God when we don't understand Him, when we can't comprehend, when we're not sure we agree, is this. Focus on what we do know to be true of Him. In the times and in the areas and in the ways that we don't know and we don't understand Him. Let me pause for a moment and help you apply this so that you don't walk away thinking whatever you might be inclined to think about the message and have nothing else to do with it. Is there anything in your life that causes you to doubt or to disbelieve God? You say, no, I've had a good day today. Well, except for the argument we had on the way to church. But, you know, we kind of worked through that and we're okay. I'm not talking about the surface, friends. I want to invite you to get underneath where you will not pass over. It may be an experience of your past. Maybe a, a, some sense of, of wrong committed either against you or by you. Or it may be a brokenness with which you have to live your life. Or just a reality of life that you've not yet settled don't settle for the surface today in your feelings alone. Consider what's lying beneath, what's driving you, what's motivating you, what is steering your life. Are there simmering embers of discontent in your life for which you, to some measure, to some degree, to some extent, in some way, blame God? And regardless of how well you pray, regardless of how acutely you hold to your disciplines of spiritual life, it remains. I believe that's where God wants to speak to you today. Be sure that you do not dismiss your discontent, your disbelief, or your doubt. But bring it to God. To leave it. With Him. To ensure that He is the one holding it and not you. God is calling you to listen to His promise for you in salvation. And to trust His work for you in all of life. When we say salvation is life, we mean it all, friends. All of it. God's sovereign work in guarding His covenant means that we are secure in our salvation and in serving His mission regardless of what threatens us or how miserably we fail Him at times. God will not fail us because He is the one that is guarding His work in us. I just want you to let that soak in for a minute. Into that very place where those embers continue to remain of doubt, of disbelief, disgruntlement. God will not forsake you. He's not left you. He's working. And He's working right there. Friends, we are marked by God and salvation in a peculiar and particular way. We are holy and blameless before Him. And we've already established that's not because of us. But this mark comes up on us by the good deposit that He has given to us in the gospel. 
Jesus Christ? Are you guarding the good deposit he has entrusted to you? The second lesson that we learn is that God's sovereign election does not remove the challenge, the struggle, the difficulty, or the suffering from our faith journey in following God. In fulfillment of his covenant promise through his chosen instrument and people, we must remember that we will not be without challenge, struggle, or difficulty in our journey. And though it can, it does not inherently indicate something is wrong about us. That's what we so quickly believe. Well, I've met a challenge or a struggle. There must be something wrong with me. Or... There must be something wrong with God. Or there must be something wrong with this situation. No, not immediately, not inherently. These are surely not indicators of God's lack of care and concern. Nor are they an indicator of His inability to fulfill His promise to us. Rather, they are the very means by which God ordains to fulfill His promise to us. By turning our eyes, by turning our thinking and our minds, by turning our hearts to Him to trust what He is doing. I want to remind you of what verse 26 echoes at the end. Isaac was 60 years old when these kids were born. How long have you been laboring in the unknown and the uncertainty of what you don't understand and what you have yet to fully comprehend? Don't believe that length in time is something that dismisses God's inability to rise to the occasion. How often... We interpret God and we interpret uh, our, our walk with Him by a single moment in life instead of interpreting the single moments of life by God and what He's done for us. God is turning our eyes and our understanding. When I read the Bible, I so often think to myself, man, I want to be like the radical faith of Abraham. I want to be uh, one that has the commanding boldness of Moses to stand in front of people and, and speak for God as he's called me to do. I want that fierce warrior-mindedness of David. And I also want that in-touch relational honesty that he brings through in the Psalms. I want the wisdom of Solomon from the earliest days of my life. And then I remember their lives and I go, well, I don't want to be a liar and a cheat. I don't want to be like so embroiled in insecurity that every decision I make is to try to subvert God's will by, by creating excuse upon excuse. I don't want to be an adulterer. I don't want to be a murderer. Wow. All of a sudden, everything you want to be kind of, well, maybe not that part, right? But I don't think I've ever said I want to be like Jacob. I want to be a grabber of heels. I want to cheat people out so I can serve myself. I want to swindle people and build my life by that. But friends, I most identify with Jacob. I must tell you in his propensity to wrestle with God. Instead of his father's and his grandfather's readiness to go, yes, everything was a fight with Jacob. I'm pretty sure my mother and my sister would agree with this about me as well. And yet that was the thread of promise through which God works. And here's the redemptive thread we see. Jacob lives aware of God and he honors him as Lord. You see, James 1, 2-4 teaches us 
that the work of God in us is a process. And it's through our challenge, our difficulty, our struggle, that God is working. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. We too often measure life by a single moment. When we should be measuring those moments, every moment, by the whole of life. We should not measure individual moments to interpret God. But we should interpret the moments of our life by who we know God to be. Because He has always been, He is, and He forevermore shall be. But it will require a trust and a hope in Him to change your thinking. Philippians 1.6 promises us. That he who began a good work in you, he will be the one that brings it to completion. There is a sure outcome when we live in God's hands. And only God can bring that work to a perfect completion. The question is, will you honor the Lord? And will you trust his promise to finish in you what he has started in you? By simply saying yes and obeying him. The third lesson we learn is that God's sovereign election secures us to walk by faith with Jesus, not to walk with no need for Him. There is a stark contrast drawn between the life of Esau and Jacob, and it begins at birth, right? Esau made his own way by his own ability. He was a self-made man. In many ways, he was the preeminent early on Renaissance man, if you will. But here's where he failed. He failed to honor God because he devalued his birthright by trusting in his own strength. What was it to him to lose his birthright when he could conquer and accomplish whatever he put his hands to? And that's the philosophy that drove his life away from God. Most important of his life was not all that he accomplished, but was a lack of recognition of God and a lack of the awareness of God's work in his life. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17 tells us that Esau was a profane person. He was an unholy person. Well, that's why he did it. No, 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 friends. Listen to me. His failure to regard and honor God properly is what made him a profane person. Do you get that? He wasn't called profane because of that. It's telling us that his unrighteousness drove his thinking about himself and drove his life. And while it seems that Esau later came to realize what he had done, he knew he couldn't undo it. He could come back to God, but he couldn't undo his disregard for God. And the conflict of knowing that, listen to me, is likely what kept him from ever returning to God. Some of you today will not believe that all that you have committed in your life God could ever overlook and forgive you of. And that is the very lingering idea in your mind yea even in your soul that keeps you from repenting and confessing Jesus is Lord and coming to God. And I'm telling you today don't be an Esau. There's nothing God cannot forgive. But you must bring it to him. Jacob was also a self-made man. He made his life by being a swindler and a cheat. That's what Hosea 12.3 tells us. 
He was a grabber of heels. He was a wrestler with God. You see, Jacob idolized Esau's birthright. That's why he swindled him out of it. He coveted what God had given to Esau. Is there no lack of irony in this for us? He is the chosen one that God will carry his covenant promise through and yet he lives his life idolizing what everyone else has that he wants. Jacob had trouble with God's election because he was not the firstborn. So he felt he needed to take it upon himself to get everything he could for himself. You see friends, we learn this. God doesn't choose Jacob because he is more godly than Esau. It's not because of Jacob that God chooses him. And that's the very point of God's sovereignty in his work. You see, friends, the gospel tells us how glorious it is. We are not saved because of who we are. We are saved because of who God is. Do you hear that today? There is nothing in you That will ever cause a passing glance of God to need to be made toward you because of your nature. But I'm telling you there need not be. Because of God who is rich in mercy and abounding in love. Has already looked upon you and he has set his love in Jesus Christ. If you will repent of your sins and you will confess that Jesus is Lord, you will know a source of love and acceptance, a power that can redeem and can reverse the sinful impact upon your life and can bring about a righteousness that is not your own but that gets set upon you because of what he has done for you. Don't walk away thinking I've got just one more thing to do. You've got nothing that you can do. But there is nothing you need to do. God gives his good deposit of eternal life through Jesus Christ. By grace through faith alone. Let me close with three final questions. Have you received God's forgiveness and cleansing from sin? By repenting of your sin. And trusting in Jesus today. If not, today is the day you must do this, friends. Do not let in any lingering ember of resentment or doubt towards God deceive you today any longer. God awaits to save you if you will repent and trust in Him. Are you honoring and worshiping God with your whole life, Christian? Are you recognizing in every way He is the one working in you? Not only in your life and the way that you relate to God and to other people, but there is so much application here for we as parents in the way that we pass the gospel on to our children. Are you doing so? Is there anywhere you're failing to honor or recognize His work like Esau did? Is there anywhere you are neglecting to trust his work in you like Jacob did? God sovereignly guards his covenant promise to secure salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. There is no good reason on earth or in you today to not say yes to him. Let's pray. Father, grant to us in these moments great grace 
that only you can give to us. Help us to understand how this great truth of your sovereign guarding in salvation applies not only to us in salvation, but in every area of our life. And even for those who are here today, who hear, but who have not believed. Grant to us that grace, that great grace in this time. And pour out your love that we might respond to you in faith and receive what you have for us in Jesus. In his name we pray.